one and all, and welcome to the Reenactors Ramble, episode 73. Now, June is almost at an end, and we've got another very interesting topic of conversation today. Now, we're going to be discussing the contrast between World War II reenacting and Flintlock reenacting with our very, very special guest today, George Mills. Now, how are you doing today, George? I'm very well, Rich. It's, lo- it's lovely to be with you and, and nice to be joining the podcast on a, on a very interesting topic, I think, if I may be so bold to say. Yes, it absolutely is. It's uh, it's been a long time coming discussing, uh, I guess, something different to uh, to World War Two reenacting. Although we'll have a few uh, smidgens and, uh, and and elements of World War Two reenacting within this this conversation as well. But it's, I mean, obviously, the very very parallel lines, different kinds of reenacting. It's something that we've never delved into too much. But before we do, um, you know, how's your season been so far? You were at Duxford a couple of weeks ago. How was that? Oh, it's been wonderful, actually. It's I think it's that sort of hit of of doing events again. I mean, last season there was a there was a couple towards the end, mm-hmm. um, made it up to the night run, which was which of course was good fun. And then the, uh-huh. the summer Duxford Air Show, and I think we did one event down in Wimborne mm-hmm. in Dorset, which was um, a, a sort of small scale history festival, which which covered everything from us in the in the mid to late eighteenth century, all the way through to Napoleonic. But the season's been good. We've done a couple mm-hmm. of uh, mostly Royal Naval seventeen ninety three this year. Mm-hmm. Um, which was good fun. And then uh, the Summer Air Show, as always, it, it, it's a very special place to go to Duxford, whether I think you're in, whether you're in uniform or, or, or reenacting or, or whether you're going there just to, to take in the splendour and, and, and the spectacle of it. So it was a good event. I definitely think it was a little bit thinner on the, on the ground for the public um, and a um, few, few gaps in the air. Yeah, um, but on the whole, it was wonderful. I mean, it's always wonderful to put the the late war bomber command stuff on, and having having had a bit of a spending spree in December, it was nice to actually have nice. a, have a few new bits and pieces on. So fantastic harness, observer harness and late war C type and everything. So nice to slowly slowly get that kit out there. And again, always lovely to see to see friends. And I'm, I must say, you were sorely missed. So brilliant. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. But no, I, I mean, I totally. Uh, totally understand that point of finally getting that kit on after after so long i had a similar moment talk about the night run last year and and i've got a few things over the last couple of weeks that i picked up um as well and and, and looking forward to getting those things back on as well and, and what better place to do it than than duxford it's it's an interesting time i think at the moment in regards to probably all sort of exhibition public shows um be that museum or showground events at the moment and i know obviously the war and peace show is being cancelled um, Duxford has been getting quite a lot of flack because it, you know retaining its entry prices with reduced um, you know aircraft and you know I guess activities on the ground and, and I think you know a lot of events are trying to sort of find their feet post COVID and understand what people want you know a lot of the traditional airshow types and people that were attending events aren't particularly attending and I think sometimes they're trying to cater for a new audience families as such and it's quite difficult for for uh, event organizers at the moment. I, I certainly don't envy them, but I think for anybody that was potentially uh, aggrieved or disappointed with with Duxford, I think I think for me the entry fee alone to the air shows is worth it just for the museum, the aircraft static or or in the air for me is is is, is good enough and worth the uh, the, value, the value for money. Sorry, I would totally agree with you, and I think in some ways what what's happening now with the change in the in the way that sort of air shows are being put on, all the way even you know sort of public public displays public mm-hmm. reenactment events is very much sort of what the the heritage sector and what and what museums went through in reimagining what their offering was mm-hmm. i think that process probably started about 20 20 20 years ago or so mm-hmm. in terms of you know the we all rejoice at the old national army museum with its red carpet and mm-hmm. and and lots of exhibits packed into cases um which again i think i'm always guilty of, of favoring a little bit mm-hmm. more but in terms of of what museums offer now, there is that focus of actually it costs a lot of money to maintain mm-hmm. these things. It costs a lot of money just to keep the lights on nowadays. Mm-hmm. So they've got to reimagine how they view their collection, how they present their collection. Mm-hmm. And I think offering other sort of styles of events, you know, whether it's having talks, you know, next to the Sunderland flying boat mm-hmm. in um, at Hendon as opposed to just, you know, sort of packing aircraft around it. You know, it is, it is something that that has transcended into into the hobby, and event organisers are looking for that return on investment a lot more mm-hmm. now. So, I know at least in in our capacity with what we do from an eighteenth century perspective, there's a lot more focus, or there has been in recent years, as having something that we can offer to families that are coming mm-hmm. to visit. Yeah, so absolutely. it's not just having sort of a a set drill display in an arena or a living history encampment a lot of the a lot of the focus has been on well have you got something that you can offer kids for example so we we introduced doing a a stripped down version of the drill that, that the lads do in the line mm-hmm. but 
for kids to come along and sort of phrasing it as something like soldier mm -hmm. school or giving them an opportunity to be a part of a, a of something like that just to increase what what what's on offer to to the members of the public and i also think in some ways you know it is good particularly within a historical context mm -hmm. you know we're like-minded in terms of our interest you know mm -hmm. we get very excited about the minutiae of yep. of things or where brevets are placed or you know what's the date of that harness but for the public consuming this from a from an educational point of view or as a novelty point of view there's got to be that sort of entry level of getting them mm -hmm. in and and in some ways again allowing us to then impart our understanding yep. and, and and our knowledge you know to keep it alive so things mm -hmm like opening it up and diversifying what's on offer are an important are an important part of that, I think, in some ways, so long as it's done tastefully. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think you're right in the, in the commerciality of it. You know, it's these things are a business first and foremost for, for the for large parts of it. Um, that's certainly, I think, why Duxford moved a lot of its collection over to Duxford, opposed to the, uh, the Imperial War Museum London, um, obviously with its its free exhibits over there as well. And I think you're totally right in, in museums are doing the right thing in trying to encourage a new audience. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that all air shows you know, 1990 to, you know, fairly recent times have been uh, grey balding men. And I mean, in, in the nicest way possible. Um, and it's yeah. very, very refreshing to see a, a young new audience, um, you know, kids five, six years old, sitting on the parents' shoulders, asking what these kinds of aircraft are. And it, it's wonderful to see them interacting with the members of the public. And, you know, the, over the last few weeks of the podcast, we've, we've discussed the ideas of accuracy on one hand and, and education and interest and engagement on the other. And it, it's it's quite interesting and appealing, certainly to me, to see uh, museums taking that direction where they actually want to engage a slightly different audience, you know, maybe at the disregard potentially to some of its traditional, um, you know, enthusiasts potentially. But I think it's uh, it's hopefully the, the right thing to do. And just darting back to Kit for a second as well, George, because we love a little bit of a, a oh, good, of a good do. Kit chat. Do. do you know it, it seems to me, I don't know about yourself, but the um, the last four to six months, I think for me, they've been um, rather, rather rather fortunate in terms of kit pickups. But I think uh, rather than gloating about that, I guess that the point for me really is at the moment, I feel like there's a lot of kit coming on the market quite recently at very reasonable prices. And, you know, I haven't wanted to really dip my hand in my pocket over the last few months, uh, but I sort of feel like my hand's been forced occasionally on finding bargains left, right and centre. I mean, you mentioned you picked up some kit later on last year. Did you find something similar yourself with sort of kit being more readily available in the last six months than perhaps was in the previous 12 to 18 months? I think it's always one of those things, isn't it? You can check eBay mm -hmm. every day of the year <laughs> religiously and not find something and then you you pop on on the, on the tube on the way home or or of an evening and you mm -hmm. and you find you know the golden thing that you that you've always wanted mm -hmm. so i think there's always that element of the luck of the draw with it a little bit but i have noticed certainly from a from an RAF perspective because a lot of a lot of my collecting at the moment and putting bits and pieces together for for impressions has focused on the RAF side mm -hmm. of things and i have noticed i think we had the we had the the run of sort of superbly reproduced observer harnesses and a couple of seat types mm -hmm. that made which again i think is always a solid investment and a mm -hmm. wonderful artifact to own mm -hmm. um come up um but yeah i would definitely say particularly with flying kit has has definitely a lot more has come onto the market i think there's also been some good quality battle dress as well or war mm -hmm. service dress or yeah, yeah. suits uh, crew to use it's three different <laughs> names that it's often mm -hmm. referred to as um, from my from my perspective, though, I, I've I, I got very lucky and, and managed to purchase um, an early war dated um, observer harness that had been uh, fitted with some later components later on in the war, obviously for, for reissue, but still with the Air Ministry crowns on the front Fantastic, yeah. and um, such a wonderful artifact. And I mean, it was one of the most expensive purchases I've made in reenactment, and you do have to think seriously about how much you're spending on, on kit because obviously day-to-day -day life is does take <laughs> over but when certain items come up if you're fortunate to be in the position I think it's definitely something to get into and, mm -hmm. and if they're there definitely the late world C type was another with a loom as well which was a superb mm -hmm. thing to get hold of and lovely set of Mark 8 goggles as well um, so there's a few bits and pieces that have come together mostly around the around the flying kit side of things as I've been looking to sort of mm -hmm move impressions in move impressions forward and particularly yeah. after doing an event like e east kirkby mm -hmm. for the um for the night run and you mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're in the atmosphere and you're, you're also you're seeing you know other other chaps like yourself sort of getting bits and pieces together and you think oh sugar i really do need to get yeah on and, and get on and sort <laughs> yeah. that out yeah and, or oh that's quite cool i'd like to explore that but yeah I, I definitely think there's been a lot of 
a lot of interesting stuff coming onto the market. I mean, your your recent acquisition of a of a lovely second <laughs> harness suit, second yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. which has been a, a a wonderful a wonderful purchase. And I mean, again, things like that. You know, I always sort of say to myself that you know this stuff isn't being produced again. There's certain items. I mean, there's some superb reproductions out there that are coming onto the market now, which have their own following for collectors and mm-hmm. for reactors. Yeah, um, but a lot of the original stuff now, particularly if it's early war dated or of a of a particular good condition, you know, it is a solid investment. It mm-hmm. is a it's a wonderful thing to own and to be a custodian of for a little while. So, you know, you've got to say to yourself, look. I mean, I said to myself with the harness, you know it's not something that I'm going to find again mm-hmm. yeah, or, yeah. Or, or easily again. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was offered to me and I thought, you know what, well, I'm going to, I'm going to leap at that opportunity. And, and again, I say it's one of the prize things in my, in my collection now, and that includes mm-hmm. original 18th century stuff. Yeah. So. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so yeah, Amazing. definitely. But yeah, a lot, a lot of focus on kit being sold. I think there's also been a move, I think in some ways to the Facebook marketplace now is a, is a 100%, great, yeah, yeah. is a great place to look for, for look for bits and pieces that are coming up and, and also the discussion on there as well, mm-hmm. I think is yeah. really, really good, you know, with people sort of, providing helpful contextual information and I, and I think that's where the community comes into its own mm-hmm. it's not just sort of i'm going to sell this to the highest bidder at the yep. earliest opportunity there's a lot of sort of back and forth discussion and guiding people towards the right sort of stuff so yeah, yeah. definitely a definitely a strong time for for kit and maybe because you know things like stonely were delayed or or other mm-hmm. sort of military shows are, are getting harder to go to perhaps a lot of people are saying actually sugar instead of taking this to an event or taking this to a market you know what there's a whole wealth of opportunity mm-hmm. to, to put this online so yeah, so yeah, yeah. How, healthy in the in, in the kit selection side it of things definitely is yeah and like you mentioned i think cost of living i think is obviously impacting some of the uh, the reasons for sales i mean a, num- a number of the things that i've purchased over the last few weeks uh the uh, two of them off ebay actually um uh, surprisingly cheap for for ebay anyway um you know the, the seller's actually mentioning that they didn't want to sell them it was just you know forced hand just with, with cost of living and um, you know, to completely empathize and sympathize um, with, with those people, but also quite pleased um, that I was fortunate enough to pick up those things. And like you mentioned, the R-series of restaurants and, you know, I had, I had a couple, I mean, I'm looking at over, over there, a Taylor buoyancy suit, which has been on the list for, for a number of years and, you know, not not cheap, not cheap items. No. But, you know, like you said, when they come up, it's like, oh, am I going to see that again? I think my attitude very much now, and it, it, it's, it's a semi-dangerous attitude, but it's, it's one that I'm... Hopefully it'll be uh, the right one in, in a lot of years to come is that, you know, if if you have any kinds of savings or even even credit, if you want to use it in a credit format, you're essentially moving money from one place to another because it's totally not, you know, you, you don't totally have the, um, you, know, you don't have that loss of value and depreciation like you would in a, a new vehicle or, a, you know, a new pair of trainers or something like that. And personally for me, I'm not the kind of person that buys a lot of civilian clothes or trainers or goes out to the pub quite a lot. You know, I'd rather save that money and spend it on this sort of thing and I've, I've sort of grown accustomed to thinking you know you're just moving money from one pot to another it's still there that money is still there you're just enjoying it um and yeah. if you need that money back then you flip it and I, I would imagine that in our sector anyway speaking specifically about RF items that 99 times out of 100 you'll make at least back what you paid for it totally and I think there's there's a couple of interesting points you mentioned there I mean I I sort of identified in some ways that I think the start of COVID put a lot of interesting stuff onto the market. Now, whether that was because people had been furloughed mm-hmm. or whether that was because, you know, other sort of challenges or whatever that had, that had given rise or people looking at a room full of sort of items and going, actually, do I need this this mm-hmm. much of stuff? I mean, I picked up a wonderful, uh, I think it was 41 or 42 dated grouping, which included a, a green peak um, mm-hmm. cap. Nice. Um, an officer's officer's tunic it had RAF regiment sort of shoulder titles on it and a pair of officer's trousers which fitted me and I mean when I sort of first started collecting RAF stuff about three years ago OA trousers were abundant Mm -hmm. but finding a pair of of RAF officer's trousers were an absolute nightmare so and this grouping came up for for a very very good price and I I thought you know sugar I might as well might Mm -hmm. as well go for it but then equally I think you know, if you if you look at your collection as something that is a is an extension of you, it's it's a hobby. I mean, there's plenty of ways out there in the world you can find ways to spend money needlessly or silly <laughs> or in a, or in a foolish way. If you if you look at it that way, having a collection 
or having items that you you can put capital in and say to yourself actually you know in 15 20 years if i don't want to do this anymore or even in a couple of years you know i can move this on and i will be able to release that mm-hmm. that equity quite Absolutely. quickly i mm-hmm. think in the uk as well in terms of american war of independence items or or good quality 18th century items there isn't an, an abundance of them and actually the the price commanded for things like original swords or hangers um the loosely called 1742 pattern infantry hanger um <clears throat> there's no actual efficient pat- pattern for it it's actually the the first appearance we can find right. of, an, of an original example or a period example being carried you know original versions of those which are floating onto the market every now and again i, I know a group that were very fortunate uh, to kit out their entire unit when they were formed in mm-hmm. the in the late in the early 70s because the um the tower of london were clearing out their stores of, of older and were auctioning pallets mm-hmm. of these swords off wow. and they were able to buy 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 vast quantities of them and you know one chap in the group you know he was he was looking to sell one of them and he was offered five and a half thousand pounds so i mean you, you think about it in in terms of in terms of that you know there isn't an abundance of this stuff again mm-hmm. sort of going back to the previous conversation but but yeah there's a it's an interesting time it's an interesting time certainly it really is and i think just discussing value and obviously uh high value items like you've just mentioned there as well george I think uh, I, I recently had a bit of a small heart attack when, um, you know, just upon picking up a few more bits and, and sort of looked at how it was stored. And there's a, a shelf just under my desk here where I keep my flying suit in sort of bags. And I sort of looked at it and I was like, oh, there's about like £3,000 there. And you, and you look around and, and, you know, I've got an inventory of all my kits. So I know exactly how much it's worth. But I did sort of think to myself one day, hang on, you know, if I was to leave a candle on in this room and the whole thing's set ablaze, oh, yeah. you know, the, the, the value of a small... Uh, house or flat is is gone up in flames and then it led me to to look at insurance as well specialist insurance and totally um, agree. in the middle of taking a policy out at the moment with an insurance company and i was pleasantly surprised at how how low it is uh it was a couple of hundred quid um i won't go into the exact value of the collection but it, you know it's pretty significant um life-changing really um but you know and it was it was very very modest yeah a couple of hundred quid really to do that um and you could pay, I think it's like 15 quid a month or just in one, one, one pot. So, and I think that kind of money, if you've got serious kit in your collections, then, you know, go and get it uh, insured. I mean, I'll, I'll post up the insurance company that I used uh, in the show notes as well. But I think anybody who's got especially high value items, uh, flying helmets, goggles, that sort of stuff, especially get them insured because, you know, whether they degrade, whatever might happen with them, it's you're just better safe than sorry, I think. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think it also that approach to your collection and the things that you wear, you know, I think is where you move from say <clears throat> a traditional approach to reenacting mm-hmm. and then being a living historian and a collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually it's that, okay, well I've spent three years trying to find this. Okay. So why am I just going to leave it there almost, you know, I, one example is um, I managed to find a, it took me many years to find it, but an original, um, uh SRAF Brevet Southern Rhodesian uh, which is one of the sort of impressions I have a particular sort of interest in mm-hmm. I can't tell you why it just sort of captured my <laughs> imagination yeah. and to find originals are you know it, it's always said about kit isn't it you know that's mm-hmm. rare as hen's teeth yeah, or you'll never yeah. see another one but these are really scarce mm-hmm. um I think the I think it's actually the when I went up to when I was doing my dissertation and I, and I wrote about fighter command and, and foreign volunteers in, in fighter command I went up to to have a viewing at um at the Imperial at the not the Imperial War Museum, uh, the RF Museum mm-hmm. in Hendon. Yeah, and I was having a look at their nationality insignia, and you know they don't even have an example. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's the you <laughs> and know, if they don't, yeah, yeah, exactly. So and I and I saw that come up, and I was I, I wear it on my on my seats aircrew blouse, and I was sort of thinking when I was wearing it at Duxford, sugar, this is a two hundred and fifty pound mm-hmm. brevet. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you got to sort sort of start looking at it in that way, and I think it is also healthy because then you also helps you compartmentalize. Okay, well, if I'm going to spend that amount of money on kit, or you know, I I wear an original 18th century officer's sash when I do my my officer's Mm -hmm. impression for um, for the Queen's Rangers, and I'm looking at that, and you know, that's a serious historical artifact Mm -hmm. that you know, for want of a better term, I'm playing with. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, true. and um, you you want to preserve it and you want to look after it. So yeah, I think if you if you're serious about your collection, particularly as you're saying, if you have high value items, but also items of historic importance, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it. If you can do it, of course, I think there's nothing wrong than saying actually, do you know what? Just as there's certain things you wouldn't take out for an event, mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking about original D type masks on that one. <laughs> um, you know, it's not totally out of the neck of the woods in the same way that you'd insure your house or insure your car mm-hmm. look at your Absolutely. collection and go as a serious asset and as a serious part of your life because you're saying you're sitting on a full, on a small fortune mm-hmm. yeah, regardless yeah. of how many parachute bags it's in yes exactly exactly that now and moving on more i guess to we've, we've even skirted around flintlock reenacting a little bit there as well so which came first for you george and was it flintlock reenacting or was it world war ii so i started my journey with with reenactment in general but um with 18th century in when i was 11 so uh i grew up just outside of bath um and there was an event on at the american the american museum just outside of bath in claverton lovely museum lovely grounds as well um actually it's the place i think winston churchill made his first political speech there oh, really? wow. which is pretty cool yeah um and they had an american war of independence weekend on Mm-hmm. Now, I'd grown up, my, my father was an amateur, my late father was an amateur aviation historian and used to do lectures for the Crossing Cockade, etc. So I had already grown up with a fascination for history, you know, mm-hmm. probably before I could actually read and write. I could tell you, you know, the, the starting 11 almost for Yastra <laughs> 11 on the morning of, of April, in the, of April 1918. Yeah. So it was always there for me. But I went along to the event and they were doing a, a musketry display. Um, there's dressed as the Coldstream Guards as they would have appeared in 1776 mm-hmm. in the second regiment, the second regiment foot guards with the tall bear skin caps. And it takes your breath away seeing the sort of spectacle mm-hmm. of it. And um, a member of the group was a drummer, was portraying a drummer, admittedly dressed in Royal Artillery um, kit because they also had a light three pound gun as well. Um, and they let me have a go doing some drumming and I sort of took to it and they said, oh, you're actually sort of really into this. You know, would you like to sort of talk about joining? Mm-hmm. So obviously I had to go away and have a talk to the family and say, mm-hmm. because again, with one of the differences with 18th century is that if you're going onto the, the battlefield or the living history field, or whatever, if you're under sort of 16, you do have to have parental supervision. Mm-hmm. So mum, thankfully, was very enthusiastic and said, actually, I think this would be a good idea. So eventually my mother and my sister got involved. So they dressed in period. My mum had a full tall Georgian wig um, that we spent one Saturday going around Bath looking to put, to find a Christmas decoration that looked like a bird to go in it (laughs) because they used to decorate their wigs. Uh So I sort of got involved in that. And then later doing some family history, we actually discovered that my five times great grandfather was a Marine drummer in the Corps of Marines. Wow. Wow. In the Francis Craven and his brother, he joined um, the Marines. They came down from Rochdale, mm-hmm. um, obviously, just as industrialization started, and they, and they joined the Corps of Marines. Um, one was 12, one was eight. And suddenly that sparked my interest a little bit more of actually, I'm sort of dressed doing the same cult drum calls mm-hmm. that my five times great grandfather mm-hmm. would have been doing. Fantastic. And then gradually over the years, did more and more events and collected more items and mm-hmm. then um, moved over to another unit, which was the Society of King George III, which I now sort of co-run with a couple yep. of friends, which do um, American loyalists. So the mm-hmm. Queen's Rangers. So they were the one of the American loyalist units that fought with the British um, during, during, the, during the conflict between mm-hmm. 1775 and, and 1780, uh, 1783. And joined them and then transferred over and then eventually when the when the guy that had formed the group decided to sort of retire from the hobby mm-hmm. um i was sort of elected shall we say as as the um as the off suppose mm-hmm. as the officer and yep. to uh, and to provide sort of the commentary and stuff like that so that's really my journey from the 18th in the 18th century sense of things and then when i was at university um so met a, a, a mutual mutual acquaintance of ours, a mutual friend of ours, Matthew Vickers, and um, I knew he was a member of Ops um, Ops thirty nine forty five, and um, 
sort of had that itch to sort of start looking at getting some RAF stuff because again that's where my my, my love mm-hmm. of yeah, history yeah. started and I told that great lie to myself that I think so many of us do when it comes to RF stuff. I'm just going to get service dress. <laughs> yes, that's how it starts. <laughs> I'm just going to get service dress. And then eventually I, we went to the good, the first event I ever wore RF kit was actually at the Goodwood Revival. Mm-hmm. We sort of paid for tickets to go down for the day, sort of like a busman's holiday sort of thing. And then gradually as I sort of met more of the ops members and, you know sort of started collecting more bits and pieces i was i was very lucky to be invited to to join them and mm-hmm. and then that's where my sort of journey with with both sort of periods started um but i think deep down it, it started with the 18th century and, and that's always sort of been the period that's captured so much of my imagination from mm-hmm. a historical perspective equally equally through to the the living history and the, and the reenactment side of it mm-hmm. and Look from the outside looking in, I guess on the the flintlock era as, as we as we talk about it. I guess how many how, how does it contrast to, to World War Two? And in that, I mean, I guess that that era can span a couple of hundred years. You know, the Napoleonic era is very different to some of the earlier years that you mentioned there. So, was there, you know, throughout that entire era, is it very easy to interchange kit? You know, between a hundred years, or does it change as rapidly as it did in World War Two? I think you've got a there's there's a clear distinction in the sense of if we're talking flintlock really you've got the start of say about 1704 1705 so the mulberry sort of wars um battle of blenheim things like that all the way through to the to the various different incarnations war of jenkins ear mm. you know queen anne's wars um all the way up to the the seven years war or the french and indian war Mm-hmm. As, as as they would know it in North America, and then the American War of Independence, then the French Revolutionary Wars, and then into the into the early Napoleonic Peninsula period, which starts at about eighteen hundred. So there is a lot that goes into it, and the uniform and equipage does change. The, mm-hmm. the reason why I think it's it's useful to to use it as a binary term of um, of flintlock is because that's when the flintlock mechanism on the musket become sort of standardized beforehand you had things like the the dog lock which is still technically flintlock but it, it, it a lot of it is still intertwined with the with the muskets of the civil war era match locks um key differences um there's a lot more complexity in some ways to the kit and i don't mean that in a in a flippant way but mm-hmm. reproducing it you know right, there right. there isn't the access to the originals which is something we probably will come on to later but key sort of distinctions are I'd say is that, you know, the uniform does change quite a lot, um, you know, from anything from fully lined, you know, coats, heavy coats with, with sort mm-hmm. of baggy sleeves all the way through to the the nice sort of round Philadelphia jackets, which is essentially the same waistcoat, but with the sleeves of your of your regular sort of uniform jacket mm-hmm. coming in. And and that changes the, the warrants sort of indicate the royal warrants, which decree yeah. what the changes are between regiments. Also, I, I think with with Second War, from a sort of British Army perspective, in some ways that the battle dress is issued. So you've got the you've got your forty pattern, austerity mm-hmm. patterns, denims, that sort of thing, and the and the unit distinction changes a little bit depending on on what you have on your arm. Yeah. Whereas the overview from at least from the American War of Independence period, so following the seventeen sixty eight Warren, you have one side of A four which tells you pretty much officially what what the king has decided you should be wearing. Mm-hmm. However, out of the hundred or so official regiments of foot, um, you will have a different cartridge box plate just alone, whether mm-hmm. that's in brass, whether that's in mm-hmm. silver. Each regiment has its own unique regimental lace, which was hand-sewn in the period and wow. then added to the jacket. Some of that you know, will be in a rectangle form. So if it will be in Bastion Luke, God. which are a murder to sew. Mm-hmm. So there are distinctions within the uniformity. And that's, you know, the regular British army before you even consider the Irish establishment, mm-hmm. the American establishment, or the various volunteer corps that were, that were raised. I mean, there's an entire sort of different uniform approach which comes in for, for yeomanry, and yeah. um, local fencibles defending Britain from fear of mm-hmm. French invasion stuff. So there is a lot more complexity in how that uniform changes. Mm-hmm. 
there are certain items that will always or where you can get away with being sort of fairly universal white yep. shirts for example um the sort of socks or hose stockings that you that you wear that go up just above the thigh um shoes again but even if you go down to a macro detail you know or micro detail sorry they change the, the mm-hmm. shape of the buckle the shape of the of the of the heel um so in principle you can sort of get away with sort of broader time periods really i mean you can mm-hmm. you can sort of understand that something worn maybe in early 17 in the late mid to late 1760s would still be being worn in the seven in the 1770s yep. i mean we okay. know from period examples that the the uniform and equipage did take some time to change over following the 1768 yep. warrant mm-hmm. i mean when the when the 29th regiment of foot you know disembarked in in boston in 17 in the early in about 1773 i believe they were still wearing their older warrant seven years war style coats mm-hmm. but with you know the the white small clothes the waistcoats the shirt the half spatter dashes that mm-hmm. you would associate with yeah. a british regiment of foot at the start of the american war of independence so there is some there is some crossover yeah um even the weapons there are there are essentially three different types of musket <laughs> that are carried by by British infantry. You've mm-hmm. got the long land, you've got the short land, you've got the marine, you've got the the naval pattern. There there are there are distinctions that come into it. So mm-hmm. broadly speaking, you I think the easiest way to do it is to pick a unit, as always with any impression. I think yeah, pick a unit and decide that's the one that you want to do. Pick a year or as broad a sort of a time period. Okay, we're going to do. 68 warrant mm-hmm. and that's what we're going to do yeah so yeah probably a little okay. bit longer overview than you wanted but no it's super interesting i mean i was going to ask I mean, obviously the depth of information there george um you know very very impressive and for anybody who's perhaps starting their journey in that world as well or just in it just for a view on i guess the contrast to world war ii presumably the research is a little bit more difficult and the sources of information out there must be fairly different i mean this is just a total assumption but obviously you know we, we look at the the early early 20th century from world war one we start to have obviously uh plate photography just slightly earlier than that we've got black and white photography and, and by the end of world war ii we've got we've got color film you know so there's obviously various pathé films um everything is, is is documented quite heavily you can go see imperial war museum archives online now and you can pretty much search any regiment you want and you'll get a plethora of images available at your fingertips there's there's books by osprey and, and a huge you know array of um authors out there writing very very you know detailed uh information on webbing on you know rifles insignia it's wonderful to see actually in many ways that 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 has that has spawned and there is a there is mm. a similar parallel um, right, okay. in in the 18th century world i mean there's a lot of work that's being done at the moment um by a great historian called haggist in the in, in, the, right. in the states who's actually been looking at just on a basic level what did what was the motivation for soldiers who joined you know because one thing that that we don't necessarily have abundance of in the 18th century is literacy levels for a start mm-hmm. yeah people aren't necessarily recording what their motivations for joining are why they joined you know in the same way that we're still fortunate enough to speak to veterans now yeah, from yeah, the true. second one we met and we met one actually at, at Duxford. it was a great privilege to chat to him he trained you know as a as a as a flight engineer yeah in, Rod- in rhodesia in in the late four in late 44 and then mm-hmm. went on to fly in the far east yeah. um so you've got that as a challenge and i think there's a great selection of watercolors that exist from the period mm-hmm. um there's a, a wonderful painting or set of illustrations that were that were done by um, a, a, I think it was from either Germany or, or France who followed part of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga and he did some illustrations of what mm-hmm. troops were wearing. Paintings again are, are a great help. That of course right. you've got to take into account there is artistic license. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the colours of facings so that the uniform usually consists of a, a madder red coat or a red coat um, that changes, you know, it's either in super fine cloth if you're an officer, so a little bit more of a scarlet mm-hmm. and a darker red for, for the enlisted soldier. And then the different colours of the regiments, which would be their facings, so the collars, mm-hmm. the lapels and the cuffs. But if paintings have been in the sun, you know, pigments can change. Mm-hmm. So there Absolutely, are a lot yeah. of challenges in that way. But one, But one of the great sort of reference points for actually understanding, particularly in a campaign, perspective what a unit what a a particular unit or particular regiment or corps are wearing in the field is newspapers 
right, from, okay. from North America that record actually what deserters are wearing. Right. So there's a, there's a great piece that was, I think it was in the New England Mercury, which was a paper that uh, Benjamin Franklin was quite heavily involved in, and it's dated 1781. And he's talking about a selection of Royal Artillery from the, from the 3rd Battalion um, who, were, who were captured or captured as deserters. And the Royal Artillery uniform is supposed to be, you know, a, a blue coat in the same style, similar style to the British infantry, faced red with yellow lace mm-hmm. around on the lapels and then around the, the cocked hat, as it's known. Um, but these guys are wearing purple round jackets. So it's like, well, where the hell did you get yeah. those from? Yeah. That's not what, that's not what was officially recorded <laughs> as, you were, as you were arriving with. Uh-huh. So there's a lot bits and pieces like that there are stuff that there are bits of clothing items particularly how um leather light infantry helmets or other cartridge boxes there's a great work that was done by an amazing artist called don trioni um from america who's done a lot of work with the new museum of the american revolution in philadelphia and he has recorded in color in color plates some of the some sort of depictions of what soldiers are wearing and his own collection of surviving examples i think I wouldn't be far off saying is the envy of the civilized world right. um, from an 18th century perspective. So there are yeah. examples that survive of various bits of kit mm. that you can examine and that you can sort of see loosely what that may or may not have looked at. But there is a lot more knowledge and you have to sort of think outside the box a little bit in sort of, well, where where do we know that's being worn? Okay, in that climate, you know, there's a great account of a, of a battle just outside of um, in Florida in 1782 and the, a french officer in his diary complains or some spanish officer forgive me who complains that it was very unsporting that the british soldiers were, were, were wearing white coats to confuse them well actually no they weren't wearing white coats they were actually fighting in their shirt sleeves because mm-hmm. it was so yeah. hot uh-huh. so it's little things like that picking up on those complexities also understanding the language mm-hmm. which is used to describe things for example yeah. You know, a, a, a regimental buckle or a um, a belt plate isn't called that. So when you see that appear, okay, they're actually referencing that. So there's a little bit more sort of depth of knowledge that you that yep. you have to use, and and really to try and root out those reenactorisms mm-hmm. yes, that, yeah. that often perforate periods. Uh-huh. But yeah, it's a, some sometimes it is actually that joy of trawling through the national archives mm-hmm. or yeah. going through a selection of paintings with friends and going. Oh my god! I actually do know what that is now. Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. <laughs> we worked out that that is actually you know made of rabbit fur as opposed to you know a hard leather helmet. Right. Right. So there's a lot more complexity in that regard, I think. For sure. And, and drawing comparisons to World War Two again, um, and providing that that sort of contrast. So I guess you know for for many in, in World War Two reenacting the the level of research, the initial spark uh, from popular culture is obviously drawn from from films and yes. TV as such. So is it fair to say that on you know in in, the, in this sort of era that Hornblower, Sharp, The Patriot, so on and so on had a similar level of impact on that sort of world as Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, The Pacific, and so on? Oh, totally. Totally. I, I think just in the same way that Band of Brothers gave rise to a to a swarm of people doing airborne, mm-hmm. Sharp captured the imagination of many probably that do the rifles impression. And there are, yep. there are several very good rifles units mm-hmm. in, 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 the, in the country as part of the Napoleonic Association. Um, Hornblower, for, for, for me was was superb i actually mm-hmm. think in some ways it was a little bit of the inspiration for us mm-hmm. possibly looking at adding a, a 1790s royal yeah. navy impression because we started off doing the queen's rangers and then right. and then moved over to that also the character hornblower is based off of sir edward pellew yep. first count first mm-hmm. viscount exmouth who is from devon mm-hmm. you know the the connection is is there and our group is based in in devon Mm-hmm. You know, we we all sort of loosely grew up a stone's throw away from where this where this man actually yeah. was. So that was a clear indication for us. So yeah, I think popular culture in many ways does does help the 18th century, and it does continue. I mean, things like Outlander, for example, for the yep. Jacobite period, mm-hmm. you know, is is a great. The kit does make me shudder ever so slightly <laughs> here and there, but yeah. in terms of capturing people's imagination, and I think mm-hmm. that's something that we those of us that do get very sort of into this and do care a lot about it mm-hmm. i think in some ways forget actually that we all started out once and yeah. actually yeah. if we're thinking about bringing people into the hobby and what 
really interests people in getting into it you know stories like this are a good entry point and then mm-hmm. the, the the correct knowledge if you like you know Follows, can be yeah. can be yeah. in, can be imparted um i would strongly advise that the patriot is ignored as a film <laughs> um there are some interesting battle scenes which mm-hmm. are great and i mean it is a it's a fun film to watch but in terms of getting an entry point i wouldn't i wouldn't really give it that <laughs> Stay much clear. the yeah. sa- the same way as um uh, what's it's a tv series that was done about the about the american revolution and the way that they characterize simcoe in it john grave simcoe mm. who was the final commanding officer of the, of the queen's rangers who's actually buried not too far away from where the family home is actually mm. in, in sort of all friends are based in devon and somerset you know the way they characterize him is appalling mm-hmm. he was never like that yeah <laughs> you know there. so you've got to take it with a pinch of salt mm-hmm. but in some ways it is a good entry point and yeah i think it has helped at least maybe from an event organizer's perspective, you know, oh, look, actually, let's let's put on a, a Jacobite event because, you know, it's a great marketing tool, isn't it? Look, yeah, it's cool at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> people have seen Outlander. Okay, well, let's get them involved in that. Yeah. Um, yeah so, yeah, there are some good ones. And I do think, you know, it's always fun, fun viewing when a friend comes up to stay or whatever, or we gather for sort of like our AGM. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, let's put Master and Commander on because, yeah. you know, which is a great film. To be, awesome. to be fair, yeah. if you're if you're into... If you're into your Royal Naval stuff, there's a lot of good things in that film. There's mm-hmm. a lot of good things, even down to, you know, the, the shanty singing, which is something I never mm-hmm. sort of fully anticipated being into. But yeah. I love sea shanties now. And, and the story of, of, of that music and that that element being included in the film is, is, is great to see. So, yeah, it does help. Uh, you've also Good. got to always take it with a pinch of salt. Absolutely. I'm really glad you said that about Marston Commander because um, you're up there with Hornblow. I think I probably watch the both of them for at least once a month, I think. You know, love, love a Sunday afternoon, ITV2, watch the whole You've, got, you've got to series. remember, in the service, you must always choose the lesser of two weeks. Yes, this is it, yeah. And, you know, Fantastic. It's, it's, a great, it's a great period film. Well, period film. It's a great film to watch. Um but again, that's sort of about as far as, as we can go, really, in terms of dramatization. Because again, we don't have for particularly doing Royal Navy, we don't have the benefit of of you know, film of you know, fight of, of RF fighter command, you know, getting out of airplanes, doing day-to-day sort of servicing. Yeah, yeah. You know, the best we've got is a great set of watercolors, really, or or prints that were produced and you're sort of squinting mm. to see, okay, yeah. is he carrying a cutlass on land? You know, is he mm. wearing sort of slops taking trousers so there's i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily maybe say guesswork i'd say it's a lot of sort of okay well that's dated then there's a Mm -hmm. reason why that was included there yeah yeah. okay from your own experience doing living history okay i can understand why the knapsack is being carried in that way or the canteen Mm -hmm. is being worn in that way there's the reason why the british army move over to one of the reasons the the british army move over to wooden canteens in the napoleonic period because originally they used to be made of tin, right. and they started noticing that in in the hot in the hotter climates, particularly in, in in North America, where it does get very warm in the summer, and even into the Caribbean, that the water was going foul, and they were being poisoned by the tin that was in the right. in the canteen. So mm-hmm. they they moved over to wood after seeing you know the American forces carrying yeah. wooden canteens. So there's a lot of there's a lot of work being done and sort of assessing things and even yeah in terms of a progressive you know movement you know i think there's definitely been a mix of of progressive and traditional sort of reenactment in the second mm-hmm. world war scene but it's now starting to come into the into the 18th century yeah. a little bit more yeah, and definitely. that constant strive for for trying to get it as accurately as possible and yeah. when i go to events now i don't bring any modern camping equipment with me right okay you know, because it's actually easier just to carry everything in your knapsack or, yeah. you know, within your sort of officer's stuff that you have for Royal Navy. Okay, well, I've got everything I need to, yeah. to use, so let's try and use it correctly. Yeah, and that's that's something I was going to touch on because obviously within the world of World War Two reenacting, there is this, it can be a vicious place, you know. Um, yeah. You've got things like Farbfest and, it, you know, in person and digitally, there's, there's lots of ridicule and, and, and so on and so forth and, and large cutthroat i think they are yeah and i think largely it's 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 because we know what is right or wrong you know and there is a black black and white so because there is a slight little bit of should we say interpretation or, or room for uh investigative contrast in opinion potentially you know in in this area that we're talking about 
do do you have a similar sort of Farby type? You know, is, does that does that exist in in this era? Is there as much of a, a sort of hate or a dislike for people that that blatantly do things wrong or in a Farby way as such? I think there's always going to be that element of you looking at another unit and you get some characters that go, oh, well, they haven't got that right or they've got the wrong colour facing. Um, you got to remember that 18th century is a much smaller period in the UK yes, and, I, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm broadening you know, everything from Jacobite mm-hmm. to Napoleonic, which is probably the strongest in terms yeah. of numbers in the UK, and then us doing American War of Independence. But mm-hmm. I think it's, it's one of those now where we're actually, because we're a smaller outfit in terms of size, People are a lot more forthcoming when it mm. comes to discussing where their sources come from. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a great page for for progressive American War of Independence reenacting in the UK. Um, there's another great page which is um, about sort of portraying the sailor and looking at period examples. And when people do come back with comments on on various impressions, a lot of people actually do find you know scanned documents where they said, well, actually, we know that you know they were carrying you know infantry hangers on board ship mm. for cook's expedition in 17 yeah so here's an example that was found and here's a a, a document that, that shows that so it's a little bit more sort of conversing but then i think there is also that because of the nature of the displays that you tend to do when you're like i'd love to do a monty's men style thing for for 18th century i mean that mm-hmm. would be incredible to do that yeah. for for the american war of independence or even the royal navy it'd be great but the numbers aren't there right you know and I, I think also the nature of the displays you tend to do are set drill displays or right okay you'll have skirmishes that you'll that you'll put on they're more public facing and there's a little bit more sort of public engagement so some within the period tend to to go for not sort of reenactorisms a little bit more i think that's disingenuous to say but I think there are some that are very much let's go for the progressive side where others mm-hmm. are like actually so long as we look uniform and so long as we're, we're putting a, a number of muskets onto the field and we're giving you know a, a good account of ourselves mm-hmm. i don't necessarily need the progressive side of it yeah, yeah i can't yeah. again i can only comment from from what we're trying to do as a group and i mean we're not perfect you know mm-hmm. we we are doing a lot of work at the moment in terms of modernizing is such a weird word to say in reenactment but <laughs> yeah yeah catching up where we are with current thinking around loyalist uniforms you know little things like actually we see them wearing a polish cuff on jackets okay let's change that which is mm-hmm. essentially a piece of ornate sort of in stitch work really on the, yeah. on the end of the cuff little things like that so there's a lot of modernizing work that we're doing and we're not totally perfect but mm-hmm. i think as, as any sort of i think we've talked about it before together like it's about your your interest in the period and actually mm-hmm. wanting to to get it as right as you can mm-hmm. and yeah, and yeah. having a, a, a good approach to that obviously within limits you can't just turn around to all the lads and go right i think we should all go and buy a brand new 1200 pound musket mm-hmm. because i don't think the other ones are great mm-hmm. obviously eventually that's what we would like to do but you've got to work with it's about people management i yeah. think more than anything. yeah absolutely you're totally right that's a really good point i think we have we have described it as, as people management it's, it's interesting to hear about the actual events you know that was a real interest in mind what kind of events can you attend in the, in this sort of era and it's, it's a bit of a shame that there isn't the, the numbers for that sort of immersive event i mean i grew up in the northeast quite close to uh, a museum in hartlepool the royal navy museum where oh, the yeah. hms is there and i've been on that several times awesome most recently i think about four months ago now i think it might have been and you know i was on that just thinking how great would it be to have an immersive event on this with all the guys just sleeping in hammocks and drinking on the tables and stuff like that um you know it would be fantastic so it is a shame that you know some of those exhibits out there can't necessarily be uh taken advantage of of them that we have done uh, if you remember kelmarsh Mm -hmm. all as an as an event you know sort of or even broadlands that event they used to do down in romsey in Mm -hmm. hampshire you know, sort of waking up, coming out of your tent and seeing a row. They used to refer to them in the, in the period as tent cities. Mm-hmm. And you've got lines of privates tents with lanterns yeah. out front. And the, the spectacle of it, I mean, if you if you want to get a feel for, for Flintlock at scale, I mean, look no further than things like Waterloo, for right. example. You know, huge numbers on the field. I mean, the Napoleonic Association put on some amazing sort of large larger scale events. Um, but even... I think from a 
from an immersive point of view, you know, we did a an immersive camping weekend within our group when we a couple of years back, and um, <clears throat> we basically said to ourselves, okay, for for forty eight hours, we're going to try and do it to the best of our abilities. Mm-hmm. So we we cooked fully from from the supplies that you mm-hmm. would have had available to you. Um, you know, we did sentry duties. We did. And there is something quite special, I think, like with any period, it's the mm-hmm. social side of it. But yeah, yeah. At, a, at a naval event, you know, sat around a fire, you know, everyone stays in kit. That's one thing that is very strong in the 18th century side of it is people tend to stay in kit. Right, okay. And you're, and you're sat there and there's, there's one chap under a bit of sailcloth sort of sewing, making a repair to his shirt, and someone starts singing. And then you're all there singing the period songs mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's something that always captures my imagination mm-hmm. and I, I think is is a great part of the of the hobby but who knows i mean the the, the two the the 250th anniversary of the american war of independence is coming up and there are talks at the moment within the uk of of, of those of us that would be willing to go going across and doing a sort of a semi-immersive thing because mm-hmm. again yeah like, when we do RAF over here, we're lucky that we can go to places like East Kirkby. We can go to Duxford, which were wartime stations. Mm-hmm. For us doing AWI over here, you know, it's a little bit harder because other mm-hmm. than probably going to Jersey, you know, you're not going to get a chance to do that. Whereas, you know, our counterparts over there and, and AWI is massive in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they do the actual recreation of Lexington and and Concord on the 17th of April each mm-hmm. year, actually on Lexington Green. Yeah, wow. Which, I mean, is incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would, I'd love to do a couple of the larger events. I mean, when they did Brandywine Creek a couple of years ago, you know, several thousand reenactors on the field on, across both sides. And even just in small numbers, I mean, we've talked, I've heard you talking about it before on the podcast about even just, you know, a glimmer of what, you know, a couple of hundred vehicles in a convoy would have looked mm-hmm. like, you know. Yeah. So something like that is, I think, within within the realms of, of realms of possibility. But it's becoming harder, I think, in some ways to get those public facing sites. Or yeah. Whereas I think National Trust and English Heritage a couple of years ago were very forthcoming with mm-hmm. with doing larger. I mean, Kelmarsh, you know, as I said earlier, were great mm-hmm. events for having that scale and large number. Yeah. It's not so easy to get that nowadays which is a shame really because mm-hmm. it's getting everyone together in a location where you can actually put on a skirmish with you know mm-hmm. 50 60 yeah, flintlocks on the field yeah it, it's nice to hear about that culture you know like the sort of seriousness i guess you know post public hours i guess at uh events that you mentioned there it, it, it seems from the outside looking in that it's a less promenading beard swilling drinking uh kind of event and it's much more about you know more, more of a historian's hobby than i guess a you know an, an action man hobby i guess to a degree a, a little a little bit i think you know, some some of the lads in 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 the in the in my group, Society of King George the Third. I mean, some of them will say actually what what they came from, what the group was formed to do was a group of like minded individuals who came from a place who had an interest in staging living history displays or helping mm-hmm. to stage living history displays. Yeah. So for them, it is the social, which is a strong, mm-hmm. which is a strong part of it. It's the same in any other yeah. reenactment group. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I think you can't help but but fall into the history side of it when you do a period where, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just, okay, well, I can look in a soldier of fortune catalog and come away with everything I need. You know, yes, everything yeah. is made bespoke for the individual because right. you well, can't go to somewhere like, unfortunately go to Stoneley and pick up, you know, a, a Naval officer's uniform that's mm-hmm. original, because if you could, it would cost you, you know, more than I'm probably worth and <laughs> you wouldn't actually want to wear it. Because yeah, it, I mean, so there's that element to it a little bit yeah. more, and that brings very, very nicely onto uh, onto the subject of kit. Really, that was going to be my next question. Really, you know, is there an equivalent soldier fortune, epic military, or anyone even close to that? Are we talking more, you know, individuals, Steve Kiddle, all time design company sort of people? Are there any manufacturers out there at all, or is it just sort of you know who whoever you can get your hands on to make these things? There is a couple of good. There's some very good sutlers in the UK. Um, there's a, a good tailor. I think it's Grace Historic Uniforms. He, he's very good. Um, quartermaster stores for for both 
you know bespoke requests for mm. for for elements of elements of uniform and small kit so you know have a sack contents for example or well, not have a sack contents you sort of knapsack content mm-hmm. contents and stuff like that but to be honest with you the, the the consensus at least from what i understand doing my element of 18th century is that most groups including my own will make our own kit right so you know you want to recreate this unit or this impression at a certain time okay well how do i go about making it i've got to teach mm-hmm. myself to say yeah I've got to work out how to how to make a cartridge box, mm-hmm. and having sewn leather and made cartridge boxes, I can tell you it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> but the reward I think that you get from it, mm-hmm. in some ways, is so much greater because you can stand there and say, "Look, I have reproduced something." I mean, the, the tailor in 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 our group, uh, Lucas Radford, incredible man. You know, he reproduced my midshipman's jacket. That I, mm-hmm. that, I, that I wear and the way he had to work out okay in the 1790s you move away from the slightly broader fit clothes aren't baggy in the 18th century mm-hmm. you know it's a tapered fit it's a tapered style they were shorter they were leaner but in the late sort of 1780s into the early 1790s you see the emergence of something called a standing collar and mm-hmm. a narrower back it's right. really sort of peak Georgian really really good um mm-hmm. And the, the the uniform warrant changed, well, the early sort of uniform warrant for the Royal Navy, which had been in existence from about 1748 mm-hmm. and refined over the time. Officers had standing collars. So we were trying to work out, well, well how do you make a collar stand up on a wool jacket? Mm-hmm. So, okay, well, what we know and what we understand of the period, okay, this is how we do it. And he faithfully reproduced, you know, a jacket wow. which I would probably... I would be hesitant to say it, but it's probably the first time since about 1797 that someone had actually sat down and made that. Yeah, you know, and to have that as an example, you know, think things like that. You know, even making haversacks. You know, Mm -hmm. from one or two examples left in the world, groups will sit down and go, "Okay, well, this is what the unit I'm choosing to recreate Mm -hmm. had at this time. Here's what goes into it. It's got better Mm -hmm. over the years. I mean, there's some there's some great great sutlers in in the states um that produce things like hats for example which are amazing um i mean the the chap that produced my wig um is the historic wig maker at colonial williamsburg in virginia right and when i approached him about making me a wig um he went through and and had a sort of almost like a consultation with me really and was like okay so what are you wearing it for what's the impression okay here are some original drawings i have from a wig maker okay so you want to so okay you're you're a gentleman you're an officer okay so you'll have two curls as opposed to Mm -hmm. a single curl right um okay you'll wear why are you wearing a wig because again the wearing of wigs changes in the 18th century in in the Mm -hmm. earlier part of the period you're wearing a wig in place of your own hair Mm-hmm. Um, as a fashion statement, or you're wearing it because you don't have long hair. Later on, you're and as you get into probably the, the mid to mid to late 1780s, early 1790s, up until about the Peninsula period, you're either choosing to wear a wig because you want to look older, the same way that British junior British officers in the Great War wore faux moustaches to mm-hmm. make them appear older. You see a lot of you know midshipmen or other men like that wearing white powdered wigs to make themselves look older mm-hmm. so you're it, it's little subtleties like that which you then yeah. bring into your impression which mm-hmm. in some ways transform what it is that you're doing there's mm-hmm. a lot more sort yeah, of experimental yeah. archaeology that goes into it but yeah it's got it's got better over the years but i still think the consensus at least in in a lot of 18th century groups is that you will you will produce yeah. your own stuff and a lot of okay. groups have their own tailors within yeah. the group who will take on that role that's interesting. And what are we talking about sort of cost-wise? I guess if it's possible to put a cost on, you know, an impression, if you say your midshipman's impression that you've just mentioned there, what, what sort of cost could we, you know, essentially put against that? Ooh, ooh. You mean the cost that I tell myself I paid for it? Or the, <laughs> uh, no, I, I think it's so great sutlers for shoes. I think the blade was, the, blade was one of the harder things to find. 
that was a reproduced example that mm-hmm. was, that was dated to to the to the mid seventeen eighties. But um, I think you're approaching for a, probably flying kit prices to kit someone out. Right, right, right. Okay. I think if you're paying someone to produce a jacket for you, and you've had the cloth made. I mean, for our Queen's Rangers impression, we had the cloth produced. We we worked out wow. what the colour was, although our best mm-hmm. understanding. We went to a um, a mill in Yorkshire, which was one of the last that still produced cloth. They've been producing wow. cloth since the 18th century, and we got them to mm-hmm. reproduce it for us. Amazing. And, yeah, that's thousands of pounds. So I think, yeah, you're probably looking at, at flying kit prices, right, I think, yeah. to, to kit, to kit someone out, which is one of the great sort of juxtapositions, I think, about the 18th century, because you have a lot of, you as a, as a sort of, early teenager you can have a, a sort of a battlefield impression if you want mm-hmm. to call it that or or a military and military impression but there is a cost element to it because mm-hmm. you can't easily go out there and, and yeah. buy stuff or you have to have stuff made bespoke mm-hmm. there is a, a, a greater cost to it um yeah things like shirts breeches even waistcoats to an extent and shoes from the right sutlers it's like you know okay i'm gonna buy a sefton b type because i know it's the best quality mm-hmm. sort of reproduction out there yeah you'll go and do that and you'll make that as an investment but you know the rest of it it does cost money and it is a it's not an easy not an easy or accessible thing in some ways unless you do mm-hmm. have a little bit of backing but then i mean in our group for example we have a sort of a sponsorship system really right. is that the group actually owns a lot of kit as yep. a society we own a lot of a lot of stuff so we will be able to issue or loan out stuff to members mm-hmm. so they can part right, they okay. can partake. And I mean Makes I sense. think for some eighteenth century groups getting into it, if you've got someone that's enthusiastic, you're gonna go mm-hmm. out of your way to help them get into yeah, that. I and then, so. yeah. I mean I didn't I didn't get hold of half the stuff that I've got now mm-hmm. for both impressions mm-hmm. overnight. You know, it yeah. was something that I was fortunate, sort of at birthdays and Christmases, you yeah. know stuff came do you think that's a, a good lesson for all groups just in world war ii reenacting as well you know that sort of group ownership and, and and loaning of that to sort of potential junior i guess uh you know members of groups or new starters to the group i think it's a you've got to look at it, it's a cultural thing in, in your group mm-hmm. if you're you get some groups i think that are friendlier and more forthcoming than others mm-hmm. um <clears throat> but then you've also got to think okay well you know parachute harness 1500 quid okay am i going to want to loan that out to someone potentially Mm -hmm. that i don't know so i think there is a there's an there's also an approach you've got to have is that you know do you charge membership fee okay if you charge a Mm -hmm. membership fee is that going to cover you know the cost of purchasing certain aspects of kit kit for people to use i was fortunate when i started doing sort of raf stuff that the ops is is filled with some with some very lovely and generous people who allowed me to borrow Mm -hmm. things to wear but i think it is a if we're thinking about the survivability of the hobby and we're thinking about, you know, I'm 22 now, um, you know, is there, you know, preserving it for the next generation and mm-hmm. encouraging the next generation to, to fall in love with the hobby that we mm-hmm. all love so much. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's a wrong thing to possibly consider actually, okay, is there a way we can bring, we can have a, a sort of a, it's like a costume store really to call it that mm-hmm. where we can yeah, yeah. you know help help younger members of the group into it you know whether it's just the requirement of can you get hold of a shirt a collar mm-hmm. and a tie or for us you know one thing i started when i took sort of took over the group was if you can get hold of your whites so mm-hmm. a shirt breeches socks your own pair of shoes mm-hmm. i think as a group we're more than happy to support you on the rest yeah. of that because you've taken Fantastic. the time out of your day to come along and help us stage an event. So I would rather have someone that's thoroughly enthusiastic, interested, who's an asset to the group when they're there mm-hmm. yeah, and definitely. do my best to support them in terms of kitting them out as they make that slow, great journey as to, into accumulating more kit than they have normal people clothes. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
Absolutely. And just to wrap things up as uh, as well, so you obviously had a few years now within, within each of those different areas. If you had to pick one, you know, you could only go down one route, whether it be World War II reenacting or you'd ask this. impressions have just been t- talked about, which one would there be? And if you couldn't choose that, because I know that might be incredibly difficult to ask, um, you know, what, what are the best elements of each of those uh, different areas of history? So I don't think I could choose because each have their own benefits and joys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the beautiful thing about doing RAF is in some ways my age. I'm the right age to mm-hmm. to, to portray it well, I like to think. Touch with there's still mm-hmm. a long way Absolutely, to go yeah. on that. But to do it, you know, at settings like Duxford, East Kirkby, you know, one of the great joys of doing Second World War is that I was able to go, okay, the stuff exists. I don't have to sit there and try and work out how yeah. to make it. Yeah. Um, so that's great. But also the locations you get to go to and the group I'm a part of is is, is very good and very sort of switched on when it comes to the, the kit side of it. So that's amazing. And the locations, as I say, are a great appeal. The 18th century side is that uniqueness and that sort mm-hmm. of mixture of research, of staging a display in an interesting location, you know, with like-minded friends and also the public education side of it is Mm -hmm. that I think because we didn't win the American war of independence, you know, most of the public think there was a minor disagreement about tea and then suddenly (laughs) America exists, you know, being able to stand there and and give them an understanding of what these people had to do for real and what their Mm -hmm. lives were like and, and what goes into actually making stuff. Um, so yeah, I think there are great, there are great joys to both both sides of it you know but for me i'm a, i'm a i'm a history nerd i i'm, I'm fascinated by all aspects of the two periods yeah. that i recreate and you know learning more about that and collecting more of those items when mm-hmm. i'm fortunate enough to is is what yeah. keeps me doing it absolutely why not it's it's much uh, the way i look at it is, is it's a bit more of an extension of just doing different impressions in world war ii you're still doing impressions you just uh you know it's, it's no huge difference to early war to late war really you're just expanding on that and your love of history as you mentioned Totally, totally agree, and and I think there's 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 great scope for both for both mm-hmm. periods to to go on to thrive, and you know hopefully you know we can all do our best to encourage other people to to, mm-hmm. to come along and, and enjoy what what we enjoy about that hobby, and also to preserve the artifacts, you know, mm-hmm. to preserve these pieces of yeah, history absolutely. and to carry on telling the stories of the people that have to do this for real. Absolutely. Well, well, George, thank you so much for your time in uh, in discussing this different era of reenacting uh, this evening with me. And what we will do is put George's uh, Instagram tag just down in the show notes, if he doesn't mind, below. So if you are interested in any of those things mentioned or you're seeking any advice or would like to join that uh, that side of the, the hobby, then uh, you can get in touch with George. I'm sure he'll be very pleased to, uh, to offer you uh, some advice and point you in the right direction. Definitely. Definitely. And again, Richie, thank you ever so much for having me on this evening. It's, it's a great privilege great pleasure no problem no problem really uh enjoyed speaking with you george and uh, hopefully i'll get to see you uh very very soon i don't think i can make the september uh Duxford show but hopefully at the night run we'll have a bit of a reunion and uh hopefully it won't be too cold definitely well i've got my overcoat now so i think we should be fine <laughs> brilliant good stuff well thanks again for listening everybody take care and we'll see you all again very soon